for, Ares, they dominated the north of the continent, and upheld their empire securely by force of arms, yet it is curious that both these nations, representing the chief civilizing and inventive powers of the continent, presented nothing beyond the most futile resistance to the invaders, their gods desecrated, their faith outraged, strong to utter fury and hate, even these passions failed to lead them to a single victory of consequence, notwithstanding the fact that their tens of thousands of warriors were faced by no more than a few dozen Spaniards, disheartened by the terrifying onslaught of the men in mail mounted on gigantic horses, they appear to have reconciled themselves with melancholy submission to a fate which only on two or three occasions during the following centuries they endeavored with any earnestness at all to disturb. How different were the battles of the South, the Spaniards who found themselves face to face with the Araucanian Indians, and with those of the Pampa on the other side of the Andes, had a far more strenuous tale to tell. The armor which had resisted with such contempt the more delicate weapons of the Peruvians and of the northern warriors in general was crushed and dented beneath the tremendous blows dealt by the clubs of the muscular and warlike Araucanians, who charged into the battle with a wild joy that left them as drunk with triumph at the end of the combat as they had been with their native spirit at the beginning. These Araucanians were, indeed, born fighters, in common with the general run of mankind. It was their lot to be defeated from time to time. Nevertheless, they repaid the defeats frequently with very tragic interest, in any case, subdued by force of arms they certainly never were. Much the same may be said of the Indians of the Argentine and Uruguayan plains. The aggressive tactics here were by no means confined to the Spaniards. On the first landing of the conquistadors, these found themselves, after having given provocation in the first instance, cooped up within the flimsy walls of their new settlements, surrounded by fierce and vindictive enemies who charged on them from time to time with bewildering fury, choosing as often as not for the purpose the hour just before dawn, which they would make horrid with their warlike cries and shrill yells. These, too, remained entirely unsubdued to the last. They had the ill fortune to be favored with fewer natural advantages than the Araucanians. They had neither woodland valleys nor mountains in which to take shelter in the time of need. They fought on a plain which was as open as day and as flat as a table from horizon to horizon, no crude strategy was possible at all events, in the daytime and the attack of the charging Indians was necessarily visible from a distance of leagues, from time to time a certain number of these fierce tribesmen were captured, but their fiery spirits could brook no domestic tasks, and when, at a very much later date, some of them were shipped upon a Spanish man-of-war with the purpose of testing their value as sailors, they rose in mutiny and slew many officers and men, and, indeed, obtained temporary control of the ship, until, seeing the uselessness of further efforts, they flung themselves overboard in a body, it was the ancestors of such men as these who had in the first instance disputed the soil with the Spaniards, there is no doubt that, while the metal-bearing lands fell into the open mouths of the Spaniards as easily as overripe plums, the maintaining of a foothold in the southern plains was a precarious and desperate matter, as has been said, the natural topographical advantages of southern Chile made the wars here the grimmest and fiercest of all those waged throughout the continent. The mere names of Copolican and Lautaro suffice to recall a galaxy of Homeric feats. The deeds of the two deserve a passing word of explanation. It was the chief Copolican who organized the first resistance to the invaders on a large scale, and who led his armies with a marvelous intrepidity against the Spaniards. He initiated a new species of attack which proved very trying to the white troops. He would divide his men into a number of companies, 
and send one after another to engage the Spanish forces, thus the first company would charge, and would engage for a while, fighting desperately, then they would retire at their leisure, to be succeeded without pause by the second, and so on. According to some of the older historians, it was by this method that Valdivia's forces were overcome on the occasion when the entire Spanish army, including its brave leader, was massacred. The other famous chief, Lautaro, received his baptism of spears and of fire under the leadership of Copolican. Lautaro was probably the greatest scourge from which the Spaniards in Chile ever suffered. Twice he demolished the town of Concepcion, and once he pursued their retreating forces as far as Santiago itself. In an engagement on the outskirts of the city the victorious chief was killed, and after his death a certain amount of the triumphant spirit of the Indians deserted them, but only for a while. The indomitable spirit of the race awoke afresh, and asserted itself with renewed ardor in the course of the next series of the interminable struggles. Compared with all this, the sun-bathed peaks of the center and of the north breathed dreams and soft romance. Naturally the temperament of the inhabitants had tuned themselves to fit in with this. The few savage customs which had intruded themselves among the quaint rites and mysticism of these peoples had failed to inculcate a genuine warlike ardor or lust for blood. Their dreamily brooding natures revolted against the strain of prolonged strife. What measure of violent resistance was to be expected from the dwellers on the shores of Lake Guadavita? The Lake of Guadavita had been a sacred water of the Indians of Colombia before the advent of the Spaniards. It was on this peaceful sheet that the cacique and his chiefs were rowed out in canoes while the people clustered in their thousands about the mountainous sides of the lake. When the canoes had arrived at the center of the lake the chiefs were accustomed to anoint the cacique, and to powder him with a great profusion of gold dust. Then came the moment for the supreme ceremony. The multitude turned their backs on the lake, and the cacique dived from the canoe and plunged into its waters, at the same time the people threw over their shoulders their offerings of gold and precious stones which fell with a splash into the waters. The lake was further enriched after the arrival of the conquistadors, when the natives, tortured and ill-treated in order that gold should be wrung from them, conceived such a hatred of the metal that they threw all they had wholesale into the sacred waters. It is said that some Indians, goaded beyond endurance, taunted their conquerors and told them to search at the bottom of the lake, where they would find gold. They had no idea that the Spaniards would actually attempt this but this the conquistadors did, and were digging in order, apparently, to drain the water off when the sides fell in and put an end to the attempt. It is said that even then they procured a large amount of gold and some magnificent emeralds, as may well be imagined. It was people such as these who suffered most of all from the violence of the strange, pale beings who had descended into their midst to subdue them, first of all by means of the sword, and then by the ceaseless wielding of the more intimate and degrading tongue. Since Notwithstanding all that has been urged to the contrary, the average Spaniard of those days even those of his number who had to do with the Americas was provided with the ordinary sentiments and passions of humanity. It was inevitable that in the course of the oppression and warfare waged against the natives some devoted beings should sooner or later rise up to espouse the cause of the Indians. This intermediary, of course, was Bartolome de las Casas, so widely known as the Apostle of the Indies. There are many who fling themselves heart and soul into a cause of which they know nothing, and who, from the sheer impetus of good heart ignorance, cause infinite mischief. The case of Las Casas was different. Before he took up his spiritual labors he had lived for years at the theater of his future work, and understood the conditions of the colonial and native life. As a matter of fact, 
Las Casas' mission did not dawn upon him until he had enjoyed a very considerable practical experience in the industrial affairs of the New World. His connection with this latter did not begin with his own generation. He was the son of a shipmate of Columbus, who had sailed with the great explorer in his first voyage, and who had accompanied Ovando when that night sailed out from Spain to take up his governorship of the Indies. It was in Hispaniola, it appears, that Las Casas was ordained priest. In the first place he lived the ordinary life of the Spanish settler in the island, in common with everyone else. He accepted a repartimento that is to say, a supply of Indian laborers and was undoubtedly on the road to riches when, little by little, the inhumanity of slave owning became clear to him. To one of his enthusiastic temperament no half measures were possible. He gave up his Indians forthwith, allowed his estate to revert to nature, and began his strenuous campaign that had as its object the freedom of the native races. By 1517 he had succeeded in attracting a wide attention to his efforts. Journeying to Spain, he persisted in his cause, and gave the high authorities of that country little peace until they lent an ear to the grievances of his dusky protégés. Las Casas was endowed to an unusual extent with both eloquence and fervor, and both these attributes he employed to the utmost of his powers in the service of the American Aborigines. Thus he painted the sufferings and the terrible mortality of these unfortunate people with a fire and a force that left very few unmoved. Nevertheless, as was only to be expected, he met with considerable opposition from various quarters where the financial interests dependent on the new world outweighed all other considerations. In the end, rendered desperate by this opposition and by the active hostility which he encountered in these quarters, he determined to lead the way by the foundation of a model colony of his own in South America. He obtained the cordial sanction of the Spanish king to this end. Nevertheless, when put into practice, the scheme failed utterly. The reasons for this were to be sought for in the poorness of the soil chosen and in the intrigues of the white settlers rather than in any fundamental fault of the plan itself. For all that, its failure came as a severe blow to Allah's causes. After experiences such as these, the majority of men would probably have given up the attempt in despair. Las causes, it is true sought the refuge of a monastery for a while in order to recover his health and spirits, which had suffered from the shock. Once again in possession of these, he returned to the field, and, undaunted, continued to carry on his work. This campaign of Las Casas is famous for a curious anomaly, that his work of mercy should have resulted in the introduction into the continent of a greater number of dusky laborers than before appears on the face of it paradoxical. Yet so it was, for Las Casas, determined that the mortality among the Indians should cease, advocated the importation of African slaves into Central and South America. His idea was that the labors spread over so many more thousands of human bodies would prove by comparison bearable, and would thus end in fewer fatalities. It is certain enough that this introduction of the sturdy Negro tended considerably to this end, and that many thousands of lives were prolonged, if nothing more, by this plan, for all that. It must be admitted that the venture was a daring one to emanate from the mind of a preacher who was fighting against the slave trade, but Las Casas, urged by his own experience, took a broad view, and none even of his contemporaries were able for one moment to impugn his motives. Las Casas was as much a product of the period and place as were the wild and daring conquistadors themselves. The new continent undoubtedly exerted a curious influence over its visitors from the old world. It seemed to possess the knack of bringing out the virtues as well as the defects with an amazing and frequently disconcerting prodigality. Several of Las Casas' biographers have wondered at the reason why the Apostle of the Indies was never made a saint. 
Certainly hundreds of lesser heads have been kept warm by a halo which has never graced that of Las Casas. Chapter VII The colonization of the South It was natural that after the first occupation of the New World the tendency of the explorers should have been to turn their attention to the South and to the still undiscovered lands. At the first glimpse the aspect of the Atlantic coast to the south of Brazil gave little promise of the wealth that is to say, of the gold sought by the pioneers, since its shores were low, marshy, and alluvial. In 1515 Juan de Soli sailed to the mouth of the river Plate, and landed on the coast of Uruguay. His party were immediately attacked by Charwar Indians, and the bodies of de Solis himself and of a number of his crew were stretched dead on the sands, this ended the expedition, for the survivors left the place in haste and returned to Spain. In 1526 Sebastian Cabot explored the river Plate, and, sailing upstream, investigated the Paraná and discovered the waters of the Paraguay River itself. In these inland waterways his fleet was met by that of another pioneer, Diego Garcia. This latter, doubtless from chivalrous motives, gave the pot to Cabot, and turned the bows of his vessels downstream. It was Cabot's intention to establish himself permanently on the shores of this great river system. Near the present site of the town of Rosario he built the fort of Sancti Spiritus, seeing, however, that his appeals to Spain for assistance remained unanswered, he eventually abandoned his attempt, there seems little doubt that he withdrew practically all his forces from the river plate, but there are legends of some survivors who remained in the district after the main expedition had left, some old historians allege that these underwent strange experiences and hardships, but the veracity of such narratives is more than doubtful, it was in 1535, the year when Valdivia marched southward from Peru to conquer Chile that the conquest and actual colonization of the river plate was first seriously undertaken. Pedro de Mendoza, a soldier of fortune, ventured on the attempt. Mendoza's career as a mercenary soldier had proved quite unusually profitable even for those days, and he had acquired a large fortune at the sack of Rome alone. His purse provided a really formidable expedition. The voyage to the mouth of the river plate on this occasion was more productive of incident than was usual. Even in those days of adventurous pioneers, the halts at Tenerife and at Rio de Janeiro had resulted in some dissensions among Mendoza's men, and the execution by the orders of the chief of one of his most popular leaders had all but caused open mutiny at the latter place. Nevertheless, when his forces landed at the site of the present town of Buenos Aires, they constituted a formidable company of men, admirably equipped with everything that the science of the age could devise for the purpose of conquest and colonization particularly the former, having founded his settlement, Mendoza set himself to deal with the Indians and to bring them into subjection, in a very short while he found out that it was a very different tribe of aborigines with which he had to deal to the peace-loving inhabitants of Peru and the Northwest, the agile, hardy, and fierce Pampa Indians, having once fallen foul of the invaders, allowed them no respite, attacked by day and night, deprived of all supplies of food, Mendoza's troops began to suffer from exhaustion and hunger, to say nothing of the wounds inflicted by their enemies. In the end, the leaders had to admit to themselves that the place was no longer tenable. Nevertheless, neither Mendoza nor his men had any intention of abandoning permanently these fertile plains through which ran the great rivers. The scarcity of minerals in these districts had now become sufficiently obvious to them, yet even to men in quest of little beyond gold the extraordinary fertility of the alluvial soil was not altogether lost. With a courage and pertinacity which does the adventurers every credit, they determined, instead of abandoning the river and putting out to sea, 
to sail far upstream into the unknown, and to seek their fortune inland. Mendoza's expedition first of all established itself for a while on the site of Sancti Spiritus, Cabot's old abandoned fort, which they now reshrace in Corpus Christi. Shortly after their arrival at the place, Mendoza himself, who had doubtless suffered many disillusions concerning the gold and precious stones of these districts, and whose health had given way beneath the stress of the hardships and of the numerous precarious situations in which he had found himself, set sail for Spain. It was to be his fate never to return to his native land, since he died on his way home. Juan de Ayolas was now left in command of the Spanish force. He was an able commander, and a man of determined character, eminently fitted to conduct an expedition such as this. Without hesitation, the new leader purposed to make his way farther up the stream. He got together the ships once again, and, manning them, he made his way from point to point along the great river system attacked here and there by the Indians on the banks, and occasionally challenged by flotillas of canoes, which boldly came out to assume the aggressive, but in every case the lesson taught the Indians was a severe one, and, and deterred by the hostility shown him, Ayola sailed inland until he came to Asuncion in Paraguay, at this spot the expedition came to a halt, and the weary pioneers landed, and immediately became lost in admiration of the fertile and delightful country in which they now found themselves. There is no doubt that to the newcomers the country in the neighborhood of Asuncion, with its pleasant valleys, rolling country, and forest-covered hills, must have come in the shape of a relief after the apparently interminable passage of the plains. It was the spot at which the pioneer would naturally halt, and endeavor to found his settlement. The Guarani Indians extended but a cold welcome to the daring adventurers. Their temperament was by nature far less warlike than that of the savage and intrepid natives in the regions of the coast. These Guarani Indians, nevertheless, made some show of aggression, and would doubtless have been glad to scare away these undesired strangers. Owing to this, a collision between the two forces occurred, but so crushing was the defeat of the Indians that they resigned themselves submissively to the Spaniards, and henceforth became a vassal tribe, lending assistance to their white masters in both civil and warlike occupations. Immediately after the victory, the Guaranese were set by the Spanish to assist in the construction of the new town, which was to be the headquarters of the imperial power in the southeast of the continent. Once definitely settled here, the conquistadors set themselves to extend the frontiers of their dominions, which in the first place were confined to the neighborhood of the new town of Asuncion itself. The tribes in the immediate neighborhood were now more than merely friendly, they were actively servile, but the case was different with the other native peoples more especially with the Indians in the Chaco, the wooded and swampy district on the opposite side of the river. These showed themselves fiercely inimical to the newcomers, and it was seldom that the Spaniards were without a feud of some kind to suffer at their hands. The new colonists had now time to look about them. Much had happened since they had first landed on the shores of the river plate, but the main object of the expedition still remained clear to them. This was the discovery of a road from the southeast to Peru. Ayolas determined to take up this fascinating quest in person, accompanied by a number of men. He sailed up the river until he came to a spot at which he judged that an attempt at the overland journey might well be attempted, leaving Domingo Martinez de Irala, his lieutenant, in charge of the ships and of a force of men. Ayolas marched into the forest and disappeared into the unknown. It was his fate never to return. His company, ambushed and cut up by a tribe of hostile Indians, perished to a man. It was months before Irala learned of the catastrophe, in the belief that his chief was still in the land of the living, 
he waked with his ships and men at the point where Aeolus had disembarked, varying his vigil from time to time by a cruise downstream in search of provisions. The news came to him at length, shouted out by hoarse defiant voices from the recesses of the forest on the banks. For a while the Spaniards would not believe the surly message of death given by the unseen Indians. In the end, however, its truth could not be doubted, and Iralo assumed command of the party. Returning to Asuncion, he was unanimously appointed governor by the settlers of the place. Illustration, Sugar Making, a 17th century representation of the whole of the processes of the manufacture of sugar. From, Historia Enipodum. The character of Domingo Martinez Tayarala was eminently sweet to the post he now held. His courage was high, his determination inflexible, and his energy abundant. It is true that, in the same manner as his colleagues of the period, he was frequently totally careless of the means employed so long as the end was achieved. Nevertheless, he was in many respects an ideal leader, and his vigorous personality kept in check both the ambitions of the Spanish cliques and the dissatisfaction of the less friendly Indians. Irala was destined to undergo many vicissitudes in the course of his governorship. Very soon after he had been elected to this post it was his fate to be superseded for a while. Alvar Nunez Caves de Vaca, having obtained the appointment in Spain itself, came out by royal license to govern the new province of which Asuncion was the capital. Caves de Vaca was essentially a humanitarian governor, who proved himself extremely loath to employ coercion and the sword, which means, in fact, he only resorted to it with extreme reluctance as a very last resource. His courage and determination were evidenced by his overland journey, for, instead of sailing up the great river system from the mouth of the river plate, he brought his expedition overland from Santa Catalina in Brazil, advancing safely through the numerous tribes and difficult country which intervened between the coast and Asuncion. The temperament of Alvar Nunez Caves de Vaca, however, was of too refined and trusting an order to deal with the turbulent and somewhat treacherous elements which abounded at Asuncion. After a while a revolt occurred, brought about probably by the governor's objection to the wholesale plundering and enslavement of the Indians by the Spaniards. The populace turned strongly against the governor. Caves de Vaca was flung into prison, and sent a prisoner to Spain, after which drastic procedure Irala was once again elected governor by the colonists. Doubtless Caves de Vaca possesses the chief claim to sympathy of all those who had to do with Paraguay at this early period of its existence, yet at the same time it is impossible to refrain from admiration of the sheer determination and willpower with which Irala pursued his career. For years Irala's position remained utterly precarious. He was the chosen of the colonists, but not of the court of Spain, which alone possessed any legal right to appoint a person to so high an office as his. No exalted personages were more jealous of their privileges than these. Several times Irala was on the point of losing his governorship, but on each occasion the measures he adopted, aided by good fortune, tied him over the crisis, and left him continuing in the seat of authority. In the end, after undergoing innumerable anxieties, Irala at last succeeded in obtaining the royal license for the governorship of Paraguay, all the while his energy continued and diminished and it was due to him that the colonization of the country made such rapid strides. The means by which this end was effected were, from the modern point of view, entirely dubious, for it was Arala who instituted in Paraguayan comiendas, or slave settlements, into which the natives of the country were congregated in order that their labor might be employed in agriculture and similar occupations. This, however, was the ordinary procedure of the period, and, as historians have already pointed out, Irala's faults, although serious enough, 
were really nothing beyond those of his age. In any case, his name stands as that of one of the most powerful of the conquistadors. During the later years of his office a comparatively undisturbed heir obtained, and he held the reins of the Paraguayan government with a firm hand till his death, which occurred at the age of 71. On Irala's death, it was only natural that those elements of discord and jealousy which his strong personality had kept in check should break out, and cause no little confusion and strife. For a while the governorship of Paraguay was sought by many, and the conflicting claims led to numerous disputes, and even occasional armed collisions. One of the most notable of the governors who succeeded Irala was Juan de Garay. It was this conquistador who was responsible for the second and permanent founding of the city of Buenos Aires. Garay was a far-seeing man, who, having established a number of urban centers inland, saw clearly the importance of a settlement at which vessels from Europe could touch on their first arrival at the continent. So the stream of white men, having been in the first instance swept by the force of circumstances rather than its own desire from the coast in a northwesterly direction, began now to roll back towards the coast once again, without, however, yielding up any of the territories which it had occupied in the interior. In 1581 Dagarai determined that the supreme effort should be made. He led an expedition down the stream, and on the spot where Pedro de Mendoza had founded his first ill-fate settlement he built the pioneer structures of the second town of Buenos Aires. The wisdom of this move was evident to all, provided the place were able to withstand the attacks of the surrounding Indians. In this the garrison succeeded, and Buenos Aires, having now taken firm root, began the first slow growth of its development, which eventually made of it the greatest city in South America. In the meantime much had been effected towards the colonization of the land to the west of the Andes. As has been related, Almagro's unfortunate expedition returned, dejected and diminished in numbers, from the apparently inhospitable soil in the south. This disaster led to Chile an enviable but entirely undeserved notoriety. Pedro de Valdivia was the next to venture into these regions. Valdivia naturally enjoyed several advantages over his predecessor, for he knew now, by the other's experiences, the dangers and perils against which he had to guard. In consequence of this his expedition met with considerably more success than had been anticipated. Marching southward across the great Atacama Desert, he penetrated to the fertile regions of the land, and founded the town of Santiago. All this was not effected without encountering the hostility of the local Indians, and the inhabitants of the new town carried their lives in their hands for a considerable while after the foundation of the city. Perhaps, indeed, no pioneers experienced greater hardships than did those of Chile. For the first few years of its existence every member of the new colony became accustomed to live in an unceasing condition of short rations, and it was on very poorly furnished stomachs that the garrison was obliged to meet and to repel the attacks of the natives. In the end, however, the seeds which had been brought by the adventurers took root and grew. Provisions became fairly abundant, and the settlements in the neighborhood of Santiago were now firmly established. Valdivia, determined to extend his frontiers, marched to the south. It was in the neighborhood of the Mayobaya River that he first encountered the Araucanian warriors of the true stock. Here his forces met with a rude awakening. In discipline and fighting merit the companies of the Araucanians stood to the remaining tribes of South America in the same relation as did the Zulu regiments to the other fighting men of Africa. A furious struggle began which was destined to last for generations and for centuries. But at no time were the fierce Iraqanians subdued, although it fell to their lot to be defeated over and over again, as, indeed, proved the fate of the Spaniards likewise. 
some notion of the tremendous vigor with which these wars of the South were waged may be gathered from, La Rocana, the magnificent epic written by Ursula, the Spanish poet, who composed his verses hot from the fight, his arms still weary from wielding the sword. One of the first of the notable Spanish victims in the course of these wars was Valdivia himself, attacked by furious hordes of Araucanians and overwhelmed. The intrepid European and his army perished to a man, while the Araucanians in triumph swept northwards, to be hurled to the south again by the next wave of battle which chanced to turn in favor of the Spaniards. Chapter VIII The government of the South American colonies having now definitely obtained possession of the enormous territories of South America, it was equally the policy of both Spain and Portugal to retain the enjoyment of the new lands and of their produce for themselves alone. In order to effect this, stringent laws were laid down from the very inception of the colonization of the continent. In a nutshell, they amounted to this, none but Spaniards might trade with the Spanish possessions of South America and none but Portuguese with the colony of Brazil. In the case of the latter country the regulations were by no means so strictly carried out as in the former. One of the chief reasons for this, no doubt, was the old standing and traditional friendship existing between Portugal and England, with so many interests in common, and such strong sentimental bonds uniting the pair in Europe. It was difficult to shut out the English commerce altogether from Brazil. In the Spanish colonies the enactments of the court of Spain were far more rigorously seen.